Let's turn our Bibles tonight to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And reading from verse number 29. Matthew 27. Verse number 29. It's a portion of Scripture. Takes us right to the cross. And therefore, every believer feels it as we gaze upon the sufferings of our Lord that we caused, that our sin caused, that my sin caused. And therefore, when we come to the cross, we, we think along those lines. Here's what it cost to bear away my sin. Matthew 27. Let's break into the chapter at verse number 29. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him, and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him, and took the reed, and smote him in the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him, and put his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him. And parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, 
And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake, and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Amen. We'll end our reading there, and we know that God will bless the public reading of his word to every heart. The text that I want to look at tonight and leave before you is verse number 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? With our Bibles open and fully aware in our souls of our need of the help of heaven, Let us unite our hearts together again in prayer. Let us all pray. Almighty God and Father in heaven, in the holy and blessed and peerless name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we approach again the throne of grace and of mercy. And we thank thee, O God, that we can come to thee. And we come as we have read the scriptures. And we come now and pray for the help of God as we turn to meditate upon them for a season. Lord, touch our hearts. Close us in. Take away the clamor of the world and the clamor of tomorrow. And rivet our hearts and our minds upon divine truth. Let Christ be exalted. Let the Lamb for sinners slain be all and have all the glory, even in our midst tonight. And I confess before thee, my complete unworthiness and inadequacy to deal with what's now ahead of me in this meeting. Forgive my sins, for they are many. Empty me of self and sin. Wash me completely in the blood of Christ. And fill me now, O God, with the Holy Ghost and power. Grant that divine anointing. Grant that holy baptism, which the Lord alone does give. Baptism and anointing to preach and to hear with prophets. Answer prayer, Lord. Close us in. Let the blood prevail. Bind every power of darkness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come tonight to this narrative in Matthew's Gospel where we have, in verse 46, this cry of Christ from the cross. As I'm sure you are aware, there were seven cries. From our Lord upon the cross of Calvary. Father forgive them. For they know not what they do. We note it in the communion season. The last time I was with you. As we looked at that text. That Christ was not praying there for all men without exception. He wasn't even praying for all men around the cross. He was praying for his people. He was praying for those for whom he offered the sacrifice. He was praying, Father, forgive them. Forgive those people that in 2,000 years will meet in Orlando. Forgive my people. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Another cry of Christ from the cross was, of course, Woman, behold thy son, and to John, behold thy mother. Another cry was to the thief. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Another cry, I thirst. Another, it is finished. 
And another, in fact, the final one, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But it is to this cry that we have before us tonight in verse 46 that I want to look at with you tonight. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it is this cry recorded by both Matthew and Mark that I want to leave before you in the remaining moments of this meeting. In Mark's account, uh, in Mark 15, in fact, if you just want to turn there, just go to Mark 15 a moment. Mark 15. Because Matthew and Mark record the cry. Mark 15, look with me there, at verse number 34. Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And taking it here in Matthew, may we may turn to more, but taking it here in Matthew primarily, I want to look with you at this cry of Christ from the cross in a message that I have entitled, The Cry of Sorrow. The Cry of Sorrow. The first thing I want to show you from it is the timing of this cry. Matthew in Matthew 27, 46 says about the ninth hour. Mark also in his gospel, he says the exact same and at the ninth hour. Now look at verse 45 of Matthew 27. Because look what it says there. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. No eclipse of the sun in the natural realm lasts for three hours. So that this plainly was a miraculous eclipse, not caused by the interposition of the moon, but by the mighty and extraordinary power of God. That's what happened here. As one Puritan writer put it, Christ lets forth the glory of his Godhead in showing himself Lord of heaven and earth. So by darkening the whole land at the noontide of the day for the space of three hours and drawing, as it were, the darkness over his naked body while he hung upon the cross, thus not suffering the creatures to show their glory while their maker is suffering the extremity of shame. The timing of this darkness was from 12 noon until 3. That this darkness was over the earth. And around the final moments of this darkness. Of those three hours. Christ cries. Eloi, Eloi. Lama sabachthani. That is to say my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? The timing about the ninth hour. The ninth hour was of course. The timing of the evening sacrifice. Remember, Christ was fulfilling the ceremonial law. I say it very reverently. The Lord couldn't have died at the second hour. He must die at the time of the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice was set down right throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Turn with me there, please, to a few of them just to look at them. Go to 1 Kings 18. You know that narrative, 1 Kings 18, where Elijah's there with the prophets of Baal? 1 Kings 18. And look with me at verse number 36. And it's the time when Elijah prays. 
And he's praying at the time of the evening sacrifice. First Kings 18 verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering. Do you see that? The offering of the sacrifice. The offering of the evening sacrifice. That Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abram, Isaac and of Israel. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. It's the time and view in Matthew 27. Go with me to Psalm 141. Psalm 141, just to see this in the scriptures. Psalm 141 verse 2. Here's David and he's praying and he's praying deliberately. Look what he says. Psalm 141 verse 2. Psalm 141 verse 2. Let my prayer... Be set before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now do you see that again? This theme running throughout the scriptures at the time that our Lord would die. They were looking forward by faith to the coming Messiah, to the hour when he would die. Go to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Go with me there please. Ezra 9 verse 5. Ezra 9 verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. Do you see it? In the Old Testament they prayed in this hour because they knew this was the hour when the blood would be shed, the atonement would be made for the sins of his people. Go to Exodus chapter 12. Go to Exodus chapter 12. You know this one very well. Exodus 12. Here's the Passover. And look at verse number 5. Exodus 12 verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A meal of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening sacrifice. Now dear people notice that. Again this thought. The offering of the lamb at the time of the evening sacrifice. And here's our Lord in this darkness. And the cry is at this time. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's the time of the evening sacrifice. The timing of it. What about the spectacle of it? The spectacle of it. Darkness in Scripture very often is symbolic of judgment. The judgment of God upon sin. Judgment's in view here. It's in view so clearly. As I say, darkness in Scripture very often symbolize judgment. Christ here has been made sin for us. Go to Exodus 10. Go back there. Let's just go through the Scriptures tonight. Exodus 10, as we think of this thought of darkness and judgment going together. Exodus 10 verse 21. Exodus 10 21. Here's one of the plagues upon Egypt. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may darkness, there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And there we see judgment and darkness going together. And you see it again at Calvary. And the words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Said in the darkness of the hours of judgment. Because God is judging the sins of his people. And yet it also has to be guarded, these words. Because there is a depth in these words that me or nobody else is ever going to plumb. There's a depth in these words that no man will get to the bottom of. Spurgeon actually wrote of Martin Luther. And when Martin Luther came to deal with these words, it was said of Martin Luther by Spurgeon, I quote, that as he sat down in his study to consider this text, hour after hour, that mighty man of God sat still And those who waited on him came into the room again and again. And he was so absorbed in his meditation that they almost thought he was a corpse. He moved neither hand nor foot. He neither ate nor drank. But sat with his eyes wide open like one in a trance. Thinking over these wondrous words. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? And after many long hours. In which he seemed to be utter lost, utterly lost to everything that went on around him. He rose from his chair. And said. God forsaking God. No man can understand that. And therefore dear people. When we come to a text like this. We glean what we can and what we can't, we worship. The mystery here, the depth of it, the depth of the darkness, the depth of this text. There's a depth here in this spectacle. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But there is teaching that we can glean. There is teaching that we can glean from it. See, everything Christ said in life or death was teaching. In making atonement, you and I understand it was necessary for Christ to be both God's well-beloved Son and to be forsaken of His Father. It was necessary. It is right to say, as another said, that our Lord Jesus Christ saw all that man had to suffer because of sin. That he perceived the total sum of the miseries brought by sin upon all the past, present and future generations of his people. But that doesn't explain the text. Because Christ didn't say, why hast thou forsaken them? He said, why hast thou forsaken me? It was personal grief. Seen in a personal cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Again we guard it. It was not occasioned by unbelief. It was not occasioned by misinterpreting of what was happening. That's unthinkable. It was Christ here is speaking infallible truth and is quoting facts. That's part of the depth of it. 
Does it mean that God didn't love his son? Never. Never. As the Father have loved me, so have I loved you. Eternal love. We cannot delve either the depth of the thought here in the mind of Christ. Again, many of the cries in the cross, we understand, no problem. Father, forgive them. We understand Christ came that we might be forgiven. We understand that one. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. We understand. Every believer rejoices in it tonight. There's a day coming. Christ will take you to paradise. It's why he left heaven. We understand that one. And he paid for our sin that he could take us there. Woman, behold thy son. Behold thy mother. We understand that one. Christ always kept the fifth commandment. He always obeyed the Father. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We understand that one. Christ's soul would go into the Father's hand after atonement being accomplished. We understand that one. But these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We understand his nation forsook him. We understand his disciples forsook him. But my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And clearly one of the teaching or one of the thoughts that our Lord was teaching here was the great subject of satisfying divine justice. Satisfying divine justice. You see, the cry showed the wickedness and the sinfulness of sin and the barrier it brings between God and man. Let's go right back to the very beginning. Go to Genesis chapter 3, please. Go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Genesis 3, verse 24. And there we read these words. So he drove out the man. And when you see the word man there, it's the word for the human race. You can literally read it like that. He drove out the race. Because he drove out Adam. He drove out our representative. He drove out the man. And he placed at the east of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword. Which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The cherubims and flaming sword. Symbolic of no way back. That's what it's symbolic of. Symbolic of the justice of God. Symbolic of a people forsaken by God. Driven out. Driven out of his presence. The same message was given by the veil of the temple. Barring the way into the holiest. Saying no going in but by blood. But when on Christ was laid the guilt of his people. There was no way back either into the heavenly temple. But by his own blood. But by his own blood. Go to Hebrews 9. Do we see that? Hebrews chapter 9 please. Remember, on Christ has been imputed the guilt of his people. The guilt of a multitude that no man can number. And Christ in these moments is making atonement for sin. Look at verse 12, Hebrews 9 verse 12. Speaking of our Lord. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption 
for us. Now do you see that? Christ did not go back to heaven on the basis that he's the son of God. He went back to heaven on the basis that the sin that was laid upon him had been paid for in full. He went back by the blood. There's how he entered heaven. He didn't go in by his uh, in, in his person as the Son of God. He entered in once into the holy place, having etern- obtained eternal redemption. Because when that guilt was laid in Christ, let me make it clear, heaven was closed to him until it be paid for. What a thought. Until that guilt is paid for in full, there's no way back. But when it says in this glorious text in Hebrews 9 verse 12, But by his own blood, on the merits of the atonement, and by his own blood, he entered into the holy place. And I say it reverently, dear people, Christ tonight, The mediator of the new covenant. The man that we have in the glory. He sits at the right hand of the majesty. And he pleads that blood. And he pleads it for his people that he shed it for. Showing us the depth of justice that had to be paid. No way back but by blood. But dear brother and sister, as your Lord entered heaven on the merits of the atonement, you too will enter heaven on the merits of the atonement. Into that holy place. There's a great justice here. There's also a great love here. It was said of our Lord, come back to Matthew 27, No man, never man, speck like this man. I tell you, dear brother, sister, Never man loved like this man. To plumb the depths of sufferings and pain for you and I, I tell you, oh how he must have loved you. Oh how he must have loved you. Oh how he must have loved me. And let's not kid ourselves unlovable as we are, because that's what we are. A crowd of people who are guilty of high treason. Guilty of the wickedest rebellion. I tell you, oh how he loved us. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's great justice here. There's a great love here. There's also great suffering. All that Christ suffered at the hands of man, he suffered silently. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. But under the stroke of divine wrath, he cries. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The great suffering of this text. But there's also a great comfort here. A great comfort. We stand here tonight almost on the verge of another year. What does this cry mean for you and me as we face another year? And all that it will bring. 
This cry reveals to you and I that because of Christ and the finished work and the great work of atonement, no believer will ever be forsaken by God. Christ cried it and you'll never have to. Christ bore our sins, died for them, bore them away, that we might never have to cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Instead, dear brother and sister, as we stand on the threshold of 2020, flowing from the crimson wounds and the crimson blood of Christ, flows these words, I will never leave thee, and I will never forsake thee. There's how you go into 2020. Knowing that because Christ cried, Why hast thou forsaken me? Flowing from that work and from that blood, the Lord will say to you, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Because your sin has been so put away that I have eternal peace with you forever. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. John exiled in Patmos. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Believers as they went to martyrdom throughout the nation since there. The reformers. They could all say I was never forsaken. I was never left alone. Oh what a comfort as we face 2020. I don't know what it brings for you. I don't know what it brings for me. I don't know what tomorrow brings. But I know what it doesn't bring. It never brings forsaken by the Father. Can't happen. The blood has been shed. Christ has obtained eternal redemption. He has entered heaven by his own blood. And though our surety and our substitute cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm telling you, there are millions that will never cry it. Because they can't be forsaken. They can't be forsaken. The great comfort. There's also a great challenge in the text. Since Christ entered into this suffering without a sense of the gracious presence of God and was killed as the surety of sinners like us with a sense of divine wrath, as he made satisfaction for our sin as he stood in the legal place of sinners, and I'll just apply it to my heart, How should this text make me view sin? Surely it has to change my view on it. I said this before. Judas Iscariot, there was not one atom of his sin that caused that wrath that was poured upon Jesus Christ not one atom did he cause because Christ wasn't paying for Judas Iscariot's sin Christ was paying for mine I caused it 
Christ entered into the billows of God's wrath for me, not for Judas. Judas at that moment is under his own wrath and paying for his own. The rich man in Luke 12, he didn't cause it either. All who meet next Sunday morning around the communion table in this building caused it. And therefore when we come to this, when we gaze upon the cross and the sufferings of our Lord, we can't blame Judas. I caused it. We caused it. So how does that make us, here's the challenge of it, can end in 2020, how does that make us look on the subject of sin? Surely we must cry out of our hearts, O oh God, give me a hatred for this stuff. Give me a hatred for that which caused the agonies of my holy Lord. Give me a hatred for that which caused Christ to be forsaken that I'll never be. It was J.C. Ryle that said we can have no longer any stronger proof of the sinfulness of sin or of the substitutionary nature of Christ's suffering than his cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Ryle went on to say it's a cry that should stir us up to hate sin and encourage us to live and blaze for Christ. The challenge of it. You see, if you have Christ and his agonies will sanctify the believer like nothing else, It makes us cry with the little hymn. It is a thing most wonderful. Almost too wonderful to be. That God's own son should come from heaven and die to save a child like me. And to tell us on the way to that cross. As the father loved me. So have I loved you. And I've said this before. Unless you and I have an idea or opinion about ourselves that is worse than madness. You don't understand that text. As the Father have loved me, Jesus said. And he said it in the last night of his life. So have I loved you. Oh, I can well understand how he might love holy angels that have never sinned. That one I could grasp. They've never done anything wrong. They were created 6,000 years ago and they haven't done anything wrong since. But when Christ, the Son of God, going out to die, says to his people, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. I tell you, there's the wonder of it all. The Father's love for Christ never had a beginning. And it'll never have an end. And it doesn't waver. As we saw this morning, it's immutable love. 
And our Lord going out to die said, As the Father have loved me, so have I loved you. And then in dying said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And though there's a depth there than there is, there's this there. My people will never be forsaken. Never be forsaken. What about any in this meeting as I close that are unsaved? What, what, what does it say to you? From Calvary you're exhorted by Christ to look by faith to him. And to that blood that was shed. Or be eternally forsaken by the Father. That's the exhortation. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is the revelation to un, every unsaved individual that to die without Christ is to be eternally forsaken by God and to pay for your own sin. And therefore this exhortation brings to the sinner a realization I've got to change my position. I've got to change the situation that this moment finds me in. I've got to, like the penitent thief, cry, Lord, remember me. I've got to seek this forgiveness that he said, Father, forgive them that he prayed for. And I say to you, my friend, the prayer of Christ, as well as the work of Christ, guarantees that if you come to Christ, you'll be forgiven. Because Christ never, ever, ever prayed a prayer that wasn't answered. When Christ said, Father, forgive them, he was praying for every sinner that would ever come to him. And it's a prayer that has been answered every day since. It was answered today across this world. When sinners came to Christ, it was answered for us in our evening prayer when we said, Lord, forgive our sins, for they are many. It was answered again. As the Lord pardons on the basis of this work. But I say to you, unsaved any in this meeting without Christ, what a warning here. To die without Christ is to die forsaken eternally by the Father. Don't do, don't do what that other thief did. Not the penitent, the other one. He completely ignored the words of God. He heard them. He heard them. Our Lord died first. He completely ignored the words of God. He ignored, let me say something else. And he saw what you and I have never seen. He completely ignored the flowing fountain of blood. He saw it. That blood that was about to cleanse his companion in crime. He perished over the word of God. He perished in spite of the blood of Christ. And today he's forsaken by God. For second, what's the exhortation on see a friend come 
come now. Come out of Adam. Come into Christ. Come out of a fallen kingdom into the kingdom of God and of grace and do it now. And this great cry from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is all you need to guarantee you that if you come, you'll never be forsaken. Because sin has been paid for. Divine justice has been satisfied. Divine wrath has been propitiated to all that come to Christ. And I say come. I say come because the Saviour said come. And to you who are saved. Let your heart be melted with humble thankfulness. That no matter what 2020 holds for you and I, it doesn't hold this. Being forsaken by the Father can't happen because your surety has entered in for you and you are today, tomorrow and forever the Lord's. May God write his word on every heart and every soul. Let's unite our hearts together in prayer. Lord, as we come to thee in these closing moments, final Sabbath service of an old year, forgive our sins of this year gone by, but take us into 2020 in the hand of God. And thank thee, Lord, that it can be written over every believer's heart and life this year. Words of love flowing from the cross. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Abide with us now. Continue with us in our closing praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.